You can't expect me to know things about the world. I'm from America. The new show 11. I'm Joe. I'm Alan. And I'm Dan. And we're back. And we've got some questions for you, as usual. You can send us those questions either on Twitter at AskNewShow or via email, show at thenew.show. And do let us know if you want to remain anonymous, otherwise we might read your name out. If you want to support creation of these episodes, you can do so on Patreon, patreon.com slash asknewshow. And thank you everyone who is supporting us there. Much appreciated. So the first question then, what future tech that you're excited about is likely to happen in a hundred years? So you mean after we're all dead? Well, that's uh, quite a morose way of saying it, but yes. That's basically what you're going for. It's something you're excited about, but it's so far off in the future, there's no chance you're ever actually going to see it, right? Yeah. Right. I would say replicators, like what you get on that Star Wars thing in the uh, Star Wars Enterprise. Yeah, with Dr. Spark, yeah. Yeah, where he just commands a machine to make him a cup of coffee hot or whatever, and it just summons the molecular structure to make a cup of coffee or whatever it is, that kind of thing. Like the fact that we've gone from the 2D printing press to making 3D objects and molding stuff, I think in the future it will be possible for them to assemble the lowest form of atoms or whatever and make them into a thing. Obviously, it will start really basic with like a, a thin sheet of graphene or something, but build up to be you know, something more interesting and multi-material. Uh, yeah, it'll be little statues of Yoda mm -hmm. and uh, that ship thing. Yes, but uh, made out of stuff that could be consumed and stuff that isn't seeded in the machine not like a material raw material that's in the machine but it might have a bunch of goopy chemicals that it can mix together into anything and form a thing that's what i think will be so far away but i think it would happen i think there's going to be at some point it'll be possible to magic up things out of materials that you have without it being like one plastic or metal material Coffee, McDonald's, hot. That's what you would say. <laughs> yes. Yes, I would. I think in a similar vein, like teleporters or any variation on that theme of like instantaneous transportation, folding space or however that thing works. But yeah, cutting down on, on transportation times, even if it was just to like the speed of light would be freaking crazy and awesome. Well, there's two ways to do that in theory, right? Either you, well, three ways, I suppose. Either you just accelerate to near the speed of light or you fold space or you go the replicator route where it's not actually you. It's you take a, a copy of you. Like an email is not, it's not the actual text that I typed. I suppose that's a philosophical question, isn't it? Ship of Theseus. Yeah, exactly. Like, is it really you if you're just destroyed and instantly remade a thousand miles away? Yeah, see, I'd be terrified of that kind of teleporter. I would, I would definitely go more for the folding space one. I wouldn't want the one where it's like, uh, you know, coming out on the other side, like technically I've died. Yeah, but even the folding space one, like you're stepping through it going, oh, wow, I'm half in this place and half in the other place. And then someone kicks the cable out of the portal maker and it just like <laughs> snaps shut and half of you is in one place and half of you is in the other place. I'd rather risk being completely bisected than knowing for sure that every time I step through that, I am killed. 
what if you could actually send all the particles through space somehow, like in some weird medium that we don't know about yet, and then they're actually reassembled, though, rather than being destroyed and created out of nothing the other end? Turn all of the mass into energy and then send it and then reconstruct it into mass somehow? Yeah, exactly. I went to uh, Disney many years ago with a family, and on Space Mountain, uh, as you get off Space Mountain, you go on a travelator back to the start where you can get back on and travel it again. The uh, sponsor was FedEx, I think. And as you're going along the travelator, there's these like scenes about FedEx on the right, you know, sponsors uh, this thing. <laughs> And I remember because we went on Space Mountain like a dozen times, there was a bit where this voice would go, in the future, packages will be sent via beams of light. <laughs> it was like a planet with a parcel, a FedEx parcel, and then a very distant moon and like a laser beam going between the two. And yeah, I think that's Cloud Cuckoo Land, actually. I, I, I think a replicator yeah. is more likely than a teleporter or, or space folding thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that a replicator is more likely. Being able to understand what molecules and subatomic particles and whatever go into making that delicious sandwich, that's not beyond the realms of possibility. It just takes way more technology than we have now. Mm. And so, yeah, I could see with enough energy and enough time to work out how to do it that it would, would happen. But what I'm most looking forward to that I'll never see, unfortunately, is immortality is the whole downloading your consciousness or uploading your consciousness into a machine and living forever. I think that that will happen one day, but I, I don't think it'll be for at least 100 years. Yeah, but it'll be done awfully, though, won't it? It'll be upload your consciousness to the Comcast cloud, and then <laughs> some idiot will, you know, RM minus RF the directory with your consciousness in it, and it's gone. I know, but it'll be backed up, won't it? Well, if you pay extra for the, for the backup yeah. option, sure. I was going to say that one too, but yeah, I, I guess the whole like ship of Theseus problem really freaks me out. And I don't know if it would end up actually being you or just like an approximation of you or a simulation of you. I don't want to spoil people that are maybe not caught up on television, but there is a currently popular television show that kind of poses the same question about like, well, Instead of like trying to upload your consciousness, that they decided that it was a lot easier to basically like create a machine learning algorithm that imitates you. And even if that imitation was completely accurate, like then you're still, I mean, you're, you technically, you're dead. Like you, the way that you perceive you, you like that is dead. But like other people, the way other people experience you is, is still there, right? I don't know. Well, there's the other route to immortality which is to conquer aging because all aging is is just entropy isn't it at the end of the day it's like your cells replicating and making mistakes in that replication and that's why you start to look old and then eventually die and diseases will all be conquered within well maybe a thousand years who knows but there's no reason why we can't cure all the diseases that we have and all the new ones that come along but then the aging problem is a very tricky one but i think ultimately we will get there and so at least for some people immortality will be an option but there'll probably be the divide won't they between people who can afford to be immortal and people who can't 
Well, you've already effectively got that. You know, the difference between someone who's got a life expectancy of like 30, 40 and someone who's got a life expectancy of 90, 100. You know, they're, they're so vastly different. You might as well live forever compared to the person who, you know, dies at a very young age because they can't get the nourishment. Or, I mean, I, I said 30, 40, but some people, you know, don't live past their 18th birthday, you know, or, or even they do live into their teens and then, gang violence wipes them out is there's so many reasons why the people who have live longer than the people who have not and and i don't i don't think it's necessarily immortality is a is the thing to strive for just those people who have not to live for the comparable amount of time as the people who have yeah i definitely think it's realistic to see a future where there are like the half of one percent of people that have lived like a thousand years or whatever and then you know everybody else just has normal lifespans is recycling worth the effort to whom i knew you were going to ask that to the planet to the people who use the stuff in the first place to the people whose job it is to recycle it i don't know is it worth it to anyone well, it's it's part of the story, isn't it? it? You should reduce, reuse, and then recycle. So if we assume you're already reducing the amount of things you're purchasing and not buying uh, plastic-wrapped products and you're reusing things rather than throwing them away and upcycling things rather than um, just binning them, then we get to recycling. And I'm torn on recycling because I get frustrated that me as an individual recycling some cans or bottles likely doesn't make a particularly significant impact on the planet, especially relatively compared to other countries who don't do a huge amount of recycling and generate a huge carbon footprint with all the manufacturing that's going on. So I, I'm torn really because I feel like I should be doing my part and I feel like everyone needs to be doing their part. But it irks me that not everyone is doing their part because that's diminishing the effort that I'm putting in. And I don't like that. I, yeah. Is it worth it to not recycle? Like, I don't know. I maybe, uh, maybe I'm, I'm nuts here, but I feel like living on a planet is good. And if we don't do any sort of recycling that, doesn't that inevitably mean that we run out of like room for people and ruin the environment that we live in and it becomes uninhabitable and, and we all die? Like, isn't that the inevitable consequence of, of not recycling? But is the recycling actually happening? Do, do I have any confidence that the bottles that I'm putting in a container that are being picked up by a diesel fueled truck that get taken away somewhere, does something actually happen to that that's better than a new glass bottle being manufactured and the same goes for the cardboard and all the other stuff that i put in the recycle bin every week my understanding is that with glass that gets crushed up and used as like substrate for new roads and stuff like hardcore i think they might call it so i don't think that it does actually get melted down into new bottles mostly yeah and it does seem like it's terribly inefficient to rely on every individual to sort their own recycling. I I think that there are some places that like they do it at the municipal level, right? That they don't expect individuals to sort recycling. That's a totally regional thing. Like where I am, 
I have one bin that is all my recycling and a separate one for glass. So cardboard, tins, plastic, everything goes in one bin and I don't have to sort it. The, it's done at the center. That's weird because I have uh, paper and cardboard in one bin and everything else in the other, uh, glass and plastic and stuff. Right. And, and in some places you can have like five or six different bins lined up on the curb at, on bin day and they're all different colors and they all have different things in them. But here is, I just have, well, I have four bins, general waste, recycling, glass and garden waste. Yeah. Yeah. So we have the three with like the landfill recycling and yard waste. But yeah, it just uh, it does seem terribly inefficient to rely on individuals to recycle because, and, and especially because it's not mandated here. I don't think so. Like, if you didn't want to get a recycling bin from the city, I don't think you have to. It's weird in the UK, or at least where I am in London, it's kind of mandated, but they don't go through your bin bags, your general waste. If you throw a few cans or bottles in there, then they don't, you know, fine you or anything. Right. Same here. But there is clearly a better way to do it with some things, and that is reusable containers. And the obvious example of that is bottles, whether it's plastic or glass. If you go to Germany, you pay a a fund, as they call it, deposit is the word in English, where you pay that little bit extra for bottles, and then you have to take them back and put them in the machine and then they get stacked and sorted or whatever and then washed out and refilled and they're all standard sizes and shapes so a fizzy pop whether that is sprite or coke or whatever it's all exactly the same size and shape and beer is a standard size and shape you'll see in um supermarkets or liquor stores or whatever that german beer tends to be a brown bottle in a specific shape and they're all that same shape and it just seems that You could do that for a lot of things with plastics and stuff as well. More standardization and more reuse. Yeah, well, I think that's what Alan was saying earlier, right? Is that reusing is, you know, reducing first, reusing, right? And then recycling last. It's the least, least important one. Reuse definitely seems at least to be picking up more with like plastic bag bands and things like that and, and kind of like mandating the reuse of things. Yeah, the whole uh, 5p for a plastic bag in the UK made a dramatic difference to the number of people who just take an extra bag in their car. Or like, and I see, I, I never used to see people walking down the street with a bag for life in their hand empty on the way to the shops. And now it's common occurrence. I always see people walking towards a store with, with a bag. It's just normal now. And that's the thing. You have to nudge people to do it and maybe. We need more nudges in order to get people to reduce, reuse, and recycle. I'm really torn on that because it clearly has worked, but I also feel that it should be up to the supermarkets. It shouldn't be mandated that they should uh, charge for bags. I think it should be up to them and the market should decide. They should be saying, oh, we're really right on and we're going to charge you for bags in order to try and minimize the use of them which Sainsbury's has done now with um, not the big shopping bags, but the smaller plastic bags that you put individual bits of fruit in or whatever, they discontinued them and started selling for 30p or something, something that was reusable. And they weren't told by the government to do that. That was something that they brought in. And then it's up to me if I want to shop somewhere else because I don't like that policy. And so it's the kind of libertarian streak in me coming out here, but I just, it seems a bit authoritarian to me to demand that people pay for bags, but then it has worked. So I can see the argument. 
Yeah, I think the problem with letting the market decide that kind of thing is that the consequences are so far removed from the transaction. Like there's, you don't really feel the impact of it. Uh, you know, if you see people's litter on the sidewalk, like that really doesn't have anything to do with like your decision at the store. I think my problem with it is, as I said, the fact that I feel like the impact that I have is so small and other countries are not doing anything and are generating more waste than I ever will in my lifetime. And I, f- I find that objectionable and I, it's irrational. It's totally stupid because I know the argument is, well, you know, you should do your part because why would you not want to live in a better world? Like, why would you want to actively make the world worse by not bothering to recycle? Doesn't matter if nobody else is, you should do the right thing. And I, I get that, but it is galling that all the work that I might do to re- reduce, reuse and recycle is undone in probably a day. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, for as much as trying to drive less or maybe if you're opposed to air travel or uh, you're going uh, vegan for climate reasons or, or whatever it is that it's industry that pollutes way more cargo ships and, and things like that. Right. But if everyone thought like that, then nothing would happen. You have to do your little bit and hope that everyone else is going to do it as well. And even if you make a tiny bit of difference, that tiny bit of difference is better than no difference. Hang on. Weren't you the one who said you don't like the idea of everyone having to do their bit and pay for carrier bags? Well, no, I think that the supermarkets should decide that themselves and let the market decide and and whatnot. But... I did say I see the argument for it. Um, And, you know, I will recycle my own stuff and reuse bags. We were reusing bags anyway, long before it was mandated. And I don't like being told what to do by the government, basically. But the problem is that everybody decided not to do that. I think that's why we have any kind of laws, right? Is that people just don't decide to always do the right thing. You know, and and so we kind of have to step in. Yes, but we only have three or four major supermarkets, maybe five or six in this country. And if they all just decided that they were going to do that, then we'd have no choice. Yeah, but why would they do that when one could undercut all their competitors and then everybody else would have to follow back? And I don't know. They could bag shame people into it or something. I don't know. Maybe the culture would change if if only one of the supermarkets didn't charge for bags and all the other ones did, then maybe people would look down on that supermarket as being polluting or whatever. I think it's the same thing with like the Starbucks reusable cup thing, right? Like nobody even knows that that's a thing that you can do and you get some portion off of your purchase for bringing in a reusable cup. I didn't know that. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, and nobody even knows about it. So should that be mandated that all coffee shops have to have reusable cups? Or charge you for the cup. Yeah, it probably should be, man. And, you know, and it's funny because, like, it's a complete construct. Like, they're charging you for the cup anyway, like, whether they put it on your receipt or not. Yeah, true. But it makes people feel bad that they had to pay the however many cents for the cost of the cup. This episode is sponsored by Learned. Sign up at automation.link and use the code the new show to upgrade and get 50% off a year's subscription to a new DevOps training site called Learned. 
The site covers the entire DevOps stack, starting with the basics of infrastructure as code, and includes almost eight hours of lessons on Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, and loads of industry tips along the way. If you're interested in learning DevOps, take advantage of this offer by visiting automation.link and upgrade with 50% off with the code The New Show. That's automation.link and the code The New Show. What's the one part of the Linux stack that never gets any love? This is a question that could be interpreted in a few ways, I think. So we'll see how you two interpret it first. I started rattling off a list when when I first saw this question, and I started with hardware support. And I know you know, the Linux kernel actually has better hardware support than Windows, uh, is what the nerds tell me. But it's not about that. It's not about the fact that you can plug any USB device in and it will be seen as a USB ID. It's more if you buy a device that needs a companion application or needs to be controlled via some way, the hardware vendor often overlooks Linux. And so that kind of hardware support. So you have to rely on some community person developing a, a kind of hacked up reverse engineered application. I'm thinking of things like the, those Elgato uh, devices used for OBS for switching scenes, stuff like that. There's an application for that, but it was written by someone in the community or keyboards that have LEDs that need controlling. Someone had to hack up support for that. And the manufacturer is never going to do that because the market is so small. So hardware support is, is one of those things that's constantly, we're constantly playing catch up with the other platforms. I think that's, that's one of the major areas. And I don't know that that will improve until market share is greater, really. But is that not the very definition of it getting some love when people go out of their way to reverse engineer it and hack it together so that people can use the LEDs on their keyboard or whatever? That is it getting love. Sure. But the, the problem then is that it doesn't get hardware support in Linux until someone who has the motivation and the skills to make the driver and make the application to make that thing work has one or a number of people have them and they need to be committed to maintaining that thing. And as a result, nobody on Linux is going to buy that thing until that has happened. And it could well be that you wait until the next generation of that device, or maybe that device is no longer supported by the hardware manufacturer, in which case, congratulations, you've now got hardware support for a dead device, right? So yes, it is lovely that people are willing to step up and maintain those things. But the problem is it's often a bit later than it is on other platforms. And by then, maybe that thing is no longer in vogue. Yeah, I I guess something that's really hard about this question is like, Getting love from who? And what do you mean by the Linux stack? I I think that's hard because, like, you know, I I totally agree with some people that have posted some articles recently that Linux is not a platform. It's a kernel. And when you look at the different distributions, like, their platforms are increasingly divergent. And it's really hard to say, like, I know for a fact that I can look at the operating system that I use and the platform that I use and say, oh, something that doesn't get very much love is like audio and video tools. Is that like part of the 
Linux stack and people on different platforms, like somebody who uses Plasma would say, well, what are you talking about? We have great video tools. You know, uh, I don't know. It's hard to, <laughs> unless you really define the question more clearly, I don't know. All right, well, let's go back to basics. First of all, what is love? <laughs> Baby, don't hurt me. Yeah, I think saying Linux is not the platform and uh, saying, well, we have to define things. You're just weaseling. You're just weaseling out the question. The, the You know exactly what that means. Like when someone says, uh, what's hardware support like on Linux? Ah, well, what do you mean on KDE? What's the hardware support? Or do you mean on GNOME? Well, no, it's like in general. The platforms are Windows, Mac, and Linux. No, 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 no. Because the hardware support in GNOME and KDE is different. And the hardware support in XFCE is different. Like you have uh, probably, if you're running GNOME, way better Thunderbolt support than a lot of other desktop environments. And that's hardware support that's specific to your desktop environment. Mm. I think you can lump them all together. I think you can and say on Linux, Thunderbolt support is, you know, 50% done or whatever, you know, this, this esoteric protocol is not supported, but all these other ones are. But yeah, it might depend on what GUI you run on top. But in general, the support is there. Is it there though if you can't use it? But if you choose to use a desktop that doesn't support it, that's your fault. Yeah. But yeah, I guess, I guess, but I don't know. Like that's kind of hard though, because it, it's, I think everybody chooses to use a different desktop because they have different priorities, but what gets love in those separate environments is very different, I think. Sure. On one platform, power management might be uh, super important and eking out as much uh, from the battery or you know, reducing the amount of watts that the system uses you know, while the, while the system's running is a priority. And for someone else, design is a, is a priority. Every one of the Linux desktops is, has a different set of priorities. I think there are some general things like power management that is a problem everywhere. And I think hardware su support is a problem everywhere. But like design, you might argue, well, no, elementary have got that nailed or some other desktop have got that nailed. But I think in general, you could say some things are, don't have as much love as others, which I think the spirit of the question. Yeah. I guess something that I think about though is when you say like, cause people do this all the time where they're like, well, how come this distribution can support this thing, but you can't. And like, if people tell you, well, you know, Alan, Intel clear Linux has all these performance tweaks and how come Ubuntu doesn't care about performance? How come you guys don't put any love into that? Mm. The obvious answer is, well, Intel, Clear Linux, like, drops support for tons of things, and you guys have way more diverse hardware that you need to be able to support. So, like, who cares more about hardware support? Who puts more love into it? Or who's not putting love into it? Like, it's such an ambiguous question, because Linux is such, like, an ambiguous thing. I'm going to go a bit deeper. There is one part of the Linux stack that demonstrably never gets any love, and Heartbleed brought that up. It's the low-level tools like SSL and just all of those obscure little libraries that just don't get any love. And now we have the uh, core infrastructure initiative and stuff that is trying to address that and has been for several years. But we're still in a situation where all of the love, it seems to me, goes to either in the desktop space, things like desktop environments and applications and stuff, or on the server side, it's more about 
orchestration tools and containers and everything, but the actual key building blocks, that low-level stuff that never seems to get any love and there's only usually one or two people maintaining it and there's not enough eyes on the code and that just seems to be the obvious answer to me well there's only one or two people maintaining it is the same thing you could say about just about any package on any linux distribution there's very few people maintaining all of the giant pool of software and in some cases there is nobody maintaining some of them in fact there's probably an average of less than one maintainer per piece of software that's on your linux distribution right now because there are many that have zero maintainers someone wrote a library to scratch an itch and that library was found to be super interesting and useful to a lot of people it got integrated into a bunch of desktops and that's it now it's there uh, until someone rewrites it or replaces it it's going to be there forever uh, or someone rewrites their entire desktop that doesn't need their library, it's going to be there forever. And someone spends a fraction of a, a cycle updating it to the new release when a new version of every distro comes out, and that's it. So, yeah, there's – I don't think it's unique to SSL. Yeah, that kind of stuff hits home because it's a security issue, but that's just normal. That's open source. There's not enough people to go around. Yeah, I guess that brings up questions about what things deserve more love, too. Because like you said, there are some things that have been written and it functions just fine. And maybe someone finds a bug in it every couple of years, but it doesn't really need a maintainer full time working on it. When I said design, I wasn't trying to point the finger or anything that there are so many parts of the Linux desktop, and I'm going to say it, Linux desktop, because I don't want to point the finger at any one project. So, you know, you could take that to mean every single distro, every single desktop, where the design hasn't been thought out, and there are too many clicks in order to enable the wireless, or there's too many button presses in order to uncover some setting that you need to use on a daily basis, and it clearly hasn't been well thought out. And we're carrying a load of legacy software that was designed by a developer some time ago, kind of thrown together with uh, Glade or um, you know some other user interface design tool that's not especially brilliant and is the minimum needed to make the thing work. And we've carried that because it's a thing. It solves a problem, but it doesn't solve it particularly elegantly. So I honestly do think design is a thing we're missing in, in the Linux world from a terms of like user interaction point of view. Yeah, I, I can think of tons of places just in elementary OS where I know it's like, we probably need to redesign that thing. And it just, nobody's cared about it for years to, you know, figure out how to do it better. I, I agree that that's totally a thing that happens. So in conclusion, all the parts of the next step. 